You are listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Assembly, Sedalia, Missouri. Thank you for tuning in. For more information about the church, you can reach us at www.bethelassembly.info. But as I'm talking here tonight, we're moving into chapter 6. We're going to skip chapter 5. Some of you that were with us last week, you remember that we looked at chapter 4 last week. We're skipping chapter 5, and for that, you are welcome. Let me explain what chapter 5 is. Chapter 5 is the descendants of Adam. This is the written account of the descendants of Adam. Then it goes through and says, Adam was 130 when he became the father of the son. And it goes on from there. Okay, so you are welcome that we are not talking about Adam and Seth and Enosh and Kenan and all of these other relatives of Adam tonight. We're moving into chapter 6 because I believe there is something we can learn because suddenly in, the, in chapter 6, a man comes on the scene, a man that we are familiar with, somebody we have seen on flannel graphs before. Anybody remember flannel graphs? Wow, I just dated myself because it was me and the senior adults that raised their hands. Okay, thank you. I have two, two that are taking one for the team here tonight. Thank you for that. Flannel graph. This is a time when you sat in Sunday school and and your teacher had that blue, light blue flannel graph board. Or if they were really fancy, they got the one with the background. Yeah, that, that was big time right there. I mean, that was high tech stuff. And then you had those paper um, images that they ripped slowly out of that little teacher's manual. Sometimes there's that little fragment. So that Bible character, maybe it was Noah, and he had like this little growth on the side of his leg because the teacher didn't quite pull all the residue. Come on, you're with me, right? You, you remember these days. And, and they were telling the story, and they would move that image slowly across the flannel graph. That's where I remember Noah from. That's the time. That's the, the visual I get in my head of Noah is this flannel graph. And Sister Shivers, she stood about this tall. The lady had no rhythm at all. Every song in church was clapped like this with the same motion, the same tempo, the same speed. But she loved Jesus. I remember I went on staff, and I'm way off target here, but I'm going to tell you the story. I remember when I was on staff at that church, later on, I, when I became a pastor, I went on staff as their youth and music pastor at that church, and Sister Shivers was still there. She was a little shorter than she was when I was a kid, but she stood about this tall at that point, and she still worshiped, and one day I asked her, we had a choir, and I asked her to join the choir. Now, some would say, well, pastor, what are you thinking? Lady couldn't sing a lick. Lady had no rhythm. Everything was the same. Why would you want her in the choir? Because she was a worshiper. So I wasn't concerned about the vocal quality. I wasn't concerned about the rhythm. I was concerned about the worship. And she would teach the story of, of Noah. She'd bring it to life for the third graders in her Sunday school class. Tonight, I want to I try to do the best that I can in talking about a man by the name of Noah. Now, we're not going to go into the whole flood scene tonight. We're not going to go into he built the ark out of Barky Barky. I think that was what we used to sing as kids. Go for Barky Barky. I think that's what we called it when we were singing the songs in Sunday school class. So I'm not going to go into that tonight. That's going to be next Sunday night. But tonight I want to look at what preceded, what, what brought us to that place. Genesis chapter 6, verse 6 is our text. So the Lord was sorry he had ever made them, 
people and put them on the earth, it broke his heart. So, so God looks upon all of humanity. God looks upon the human beings that he created, beginning with Adam. But now he looks over, over all mankind. His heart's broken. And the Bible says he was sorry that he even made them. What brought God to this place of being sorry that he formed us? What brought God to this place that his heart was broken when he looked at humankind and he said, I can't even stomach you anymore. What brought him to this place? What led up to the point that he wanted to destroy them all? Start over. Give a clean slate. I want to take a moment. I want to read a portion of what's transpiring. Genesis chapter 6, verse 1, it says, Then the people began to multiply on the earth. And that was instructed, yes, be fruitful and multiply. That means children were being born. Population was beginning to grow. The daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw the beautiful women and took any they wanted as their wives. Again, be fruitful and multiply, right? We're going to talk about this in just a moment. Then the Lord said, my spirit will not put up with humans for such a long time. For they are only mortal flesh. In the future, their normal lifespan will be no more than 120 years. We're going to talk about what that means in just a moment. In those days and for some time after, giant uh, Nephilites lived on the earth. For wherever the sons of God had intercourse with women, they gave birth to children who became the heroes and famous warriors of ancient times. The Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth. And he saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. Let me read that again. And he saw that everything they thought, everything that crossed their mind, every image that appeared in their mind, everything that they imagined was consistently and totally evil. So the Lord was sorry he ever made them and put them on the earth. It broke his heart. And the Lord said, I will wipe this human race I have created from the face of the earth. Yes, and I will destroy every living thing, all the people. The large animals, the small animals that scurry along the ground, and even the birds in the sky. I am sorry I ever made them. But Noah found favor with the Lord. But Noah found favor. I'm not going to get into Noah tonight. I mentioned that a moment ago. We're going to talk about that next week. But let me just suffice it to say that Noah was walking the right track. Now, does that mean that Noah was perfect? No, we're going to find out uh, probably next week or the week after that Noah made some mistakes. 
Noah did some things that I'm sure that he was sorry for. But Noah found favor in the eyes of God. Let's look at our text tonight. Genesis chapter 6, 1 through 8. What's happening in that 8 verse segment. First off, we see a phrase. We see this idea of sons of God. So who are the sons of God? You have your outline tonight. I would encourage you to take notes. Were the sons of God angels or even fallen angels? Some would believe that. Some theologians believe that was the case. But I don't believe that was the case. And many theologians and commentaries that I've read and processed through believe otherwise as well. There are some reasons why I don't believe they were formed in angel, as angels or any form of angels. The biggest reason is Jesus himself tells us in the book of Matthew and also in the book of Mark that angels do not marry. Are you with me here? Angels do not marry. And suddenly here we see in the book of Genesis... The sons of God saw the beautiful women and took any they wanted as their wives. So if angels do not marry, then angels cannot take someone as their wife. Therefore, these sons of God could not have been angels. The phrase sons of God most likely refers to men who were descendants, direct descendants of the godly family line of Seth. Now, who is Seth? Adam and Eve had Cain and Abel. Remember this? Cain was jealous of his brother Abel. He went out in the field and he killed his brother. Remember that? We talked about that last week. Adam and Eve had another son. Actually, they had several, but one that was mentioned was by the name of Seth. Seth was the godly line. So you had Cain's line, which is the ungodly line, and you had Seth's line, which was the godly line. So we believe that these sons of God were direct descendants of Seth. Seth was the son, as I mentioned a moment ago, referred to in Genesis chapter 5 as being exactly like Adam in his image in every way. This would be the godly line. They followed after God. But something happened. They saw some beautiful women. They were attracted to these ladies. Why is this a problem? Well, let's see who these beautiful women are. So real quick, in your notes, the sons of God were the descendants of Adam's son, Seth. The second thing we see is the reference to beautiful women, or some translations say daughters of man. You have the sons of God and the daughters of man. Who are these daughters of man or these beautiful women? They are the direct descendants, the women from Cain's branch of the family. They were the women of the ungodly family line of Cain. Again, Cain is the one that we learned about last week that allowed anger to so rule his life that he ended up murdering his brother Abel. He was the one that refused to do what is right in the eyes of the Lord. God said, you can be accepted if you do what is right. Instead, Cain chose to do just the opposite and kill his brother. These women were from the ungodly line of Cain. So where's the problem? After all, they were instructed to be fruitful and multiply. Why is it that the sons of God, these descendants of Seth, why is it that they can't look upon these women and go, wow, she is really pretty. I would love to have her to be my wife. 
Is it wrong to marry an attractive woman? Okay, let me ask that again. Is it wrong to marry? Guys, let me just say, if there's a man in the house that's married, your cue right now is to say, no, it's not a sin. My wife's really hot. Okay, so that's your cue. Guys, is it a sin? So one lady is looking back at her husband right now. I see you over there. Is it a sin to marry an attractive woman? No, I'm telling you, my wife is pretty. Let's, let's, let's move on. Let's move on. By the way, you can all tell my wife that I said she was beautiful tonight. Let her know that. She is the, I mean, she is, yeah, I'm just telling you, yes. All right, be fruitful and multiply. That was the instruction. Why is that a problem? Why is that wrong? I'm going to look tonight at four observations of real life. Four things that I see transpiring here. Number one is this. Allowing sin to run free will destroy your life and the generations that follow. I was sitting at lunch today and we were having a conversation as a family. And, and let me just tell you, this, this millennial generation that's growing up, they're, they're on a whole different wavelength. And in the course of conversation, um, my daughter said something to me, and she's going to kill me for sharing this, but I'm going to anyway. So we begin to talk, and she's like, you know, kind of my philosophy is I don't need to really worry about anybody else. I don't have to do anything. I'm just going to hide out in my room and just going to be concerned about me, and that's good enough. Wow. So we had a little conversation at lunch today. Because you see, we as Christians are called to reach out to those to make an impact, to make a difference for the kingdom of God. Culture today is going to tell you, don't worry about anybody else. It's all about you. Fend for yourself. Look at yourself. But allowing sin to run free will destroy your life and the generations that follow. But that's exactly what's taking place. Seth's family line had decided to allow the sinful nature to run free in their life. They were simply toying with sin. They were flirting with the sinful line of Cain. They were hanging out with the sin nature of the enemies beside them. By the way, sin is your enemy. So here we have the godly line flirting with the ungodly line. The godly were marrying the ungodly. Therefore, sin became more and more and more prevalent. Oh, pastor, well, if the godly line marries the ungodly, they can just convert them to the godly line. Can I just tell you, it's easier to pull somebody down than it is to pull them up. So what was happening here is the ungodly was pulling the godly line down, and they were toying, and they were allowing sin to become more and more and more prevalent. The world became preoccupied with evil. Corruption set in and people were filled with violence. Do you see the problem here? They were completely in disregard to the warnings that God had set through, Mo- or through Noah. Repent. Turn back to God. That was the message that Noah was sharing. Yet all that was given in response was mockery and ridicule. Why is he building a boat anyway? Oh, it's just crazy old Noah. No regard to the warning that God had set forth. They just married by what pleased them visually, rather by spiritual standards. 
One thing I instill in my kids often as we're talking about their future and dating and, and marriage. You see, I, my kids are getting closer and closer to that age every day. It dawned on me just a couple of weeks ago as I performed a wedding ceremony that my son is 18 and my wife, when her and I first met, she was 19 and we, had, we were married by the time she was 20. And I'm thinking, my son is really close to that point of possible marriage. My daughter is turning 16 this year and life is going to change as we know it. I'm certain of that. So we talk semi-regular about dating and different things. And one of the things that I mentioned to them is on your list of desires and longings in a future spouse, make sure that spiritual standard is set high. That they have a faith and a belief and an understanding and a relationship with Jesus Christ more than anything else. More than any else, other desire, more than any other longing, more than anything else, they need a relationship with Jesus Christ. You see, the, the direct descendants of Seth, they disregarded that idea. They pushed forward with what pleased them physically, what was pleasing visually, rather than the spiritual standards. In a time when they should have been repenting, in a time when they should have been turning back to God, they clung to their sinful nature, they clung to the fleshly wants. It sounds a lot like today's culture. We justify our actions, we give excuse after excuse, but we fail to make the true commitment that needs to be made to God. Look what it says in 1 John chapter 1. God is lights. There's no darkness in him at all. So we are lying if we say we have fellowship with God, but go on living in spiritual darkness. In other words, we're lying to ourselves if we say that we have a, a relationship with God, but we toy with the enemy. We're lying to ourselves if we say we have a relationship with God, but we only do what pleases us physically. We're lying to ourselves if we begin and remain with toying with sin. Amen. We're not practicing the truth. But if we are living in the lights, say if. If we are living in the light as God is in the light, come on, look at that. If we're hanging out in the very presence of God, if we're allowing ourselves to be surrounded by the very nature of the one that created us, if we're allowing ourselves to be a part with the one who died on the cross of Calvary with us, if we are living in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all. All sin. And that's a, that's a good place to say amen, just for future reference. If we claim we have not sinned, we are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But if we confess, do you see all these ifs? I mean, about every third or fourth word, there's an if. That means we have a choice. What are we going to do? The sons of God, the direct descendants of Seth, had a choice to make. Would they do what pleased them visually? Oh, look at her. She needs to come home and be my wife. Right? 
Only what pleased them visually. They had a choice to make. Church, let me tell you tonight, you have a choice to make. What route will you take? What direction will you go? It's to the right or it's to the left. It's not zigzag back and forth. It's time to stop toying with sin. The Bible says, rid yourself. That doesn't mean stick it in your back pocket for a later time. It doesn't mean hide it in the back closet for a later observation. That means get rid of it, cleanse it out, clean it out, purify yourself, get yourself on the right track, go down the right path. But the sons of God, the descendants of Seth, found themselves toying with sin. And I discovered that allowing sin to run free will destroy your life and the generation's that follow. How does it affect the future generation? Real easy. See, my influence influences the next generation, which influences the next generation, which influences the next generation. I'm told that what one generation will tolerate, the next generation will embrace. What are you tolerating? What sin, what wrong behavior are you tolerating in your life? Because the generations to follow will embrace it. If we are living in the light as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we claim we have not sin, if we claim we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, man, I look at that and I think, what would have changed? What would the story of Noah and the ark look like? if the direct descendants of Seth would have confessed their sins and turned to God. I want you to think about it. That could have been a huge change. Rather than just the story of Noah, it could be the story of the sons of God. A fleet army of boats. Right? If we confess our sins to him, here's a good moment for you, a good moment for me. He is faithful. He is just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us, not cover up, but to cleanse us from all wickedness. Some translations say all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we are calling God a liar and showing that his word has no place in our hearts. We are lying if we say we have relationship with God and go on embracing sin. We go on embracing that which pleases us physically, which pleases us visually, which pleases us emotionally. The sin that so easily trips us up. Church, it's time to take sin seriously. It's not enough simply to dig a hole in the sand and bury our head in the hole and think eventually it's going to go by. Eventually it's going to pass. We must examine our lives. We must turn from our sins. We must repent and move in a new direction with God. 
After all, observation number two is this. Embracing sin causes a separation with God. Embracing sin causes a separation. You have the family line of Cain, the family line of Seth. The godly line is over here with Seth. But suddenly they begin to be impressed with what's happening with Cain's family line. They begin to look at the women folk. They begin to hang out with them a little bit more. They begin to compromise their moral stance. They begin to compromise their daily activity. And suddenly they find themselves coming closer and closer. Now they are tiptoeing on the fence line. And they're thinking, you know what? I'm doing okay. I'm walking the line. But how many of you know it doesn't take very much to fall off the fence? Embracing sin will cause separation with God. Here is what I want you to understand tonight. Sin breaks the hearts of God. Sin breaks the heart of God. God and sin cannot coexist. It is not yin and yang, a little good and a little evil. No, we are called to be set apart. We are called to be different. We are called to be light in a dark world. We are called to be salt in a saltless society. We are called to be holy because he is holy. We must make the choice. Which way will we choose? What will we do? Those in the day of Noah had a choice to make. Choose to embrace a life of sin. To the point that it broke the very heart of God. Or choose to follow after the plan that God had set in motion. Noah found favor with God. Noah made a choice to go in the right direction. To choose who he would serve. We must come to a place today, a decision. Who will we follow? You see, the choices that you make today affect the generations that follow. Who will you choose to follow today? What will you do today? What life will you choose? I believe that the days of living a compromised life will no longer work. Culture is very quickly making a definitive line. It's time to stop toying with sin. It's time to to make a choice because embracing sin will cause a separation with, with God. The days of walking the fence are over. Look at our text again. So the Lord was sorry that he ever made man. It broke his heart. Could you imagine sitting here tonight? And suddenly in the flesh, God walked up. He looks you right in the eye and he says, I'm sorry I ever made you. I'm sorry that I ever breathed life into you. You break my heart. Could you imagine? But that's what's happening here. I I want you to catch that visual tonight. It's as if God is standing here right in front of us, catching us eyeball to eyeball, each and every one. 
so disappointed. Sorry that I ever formed you. Man, I don't know about you, but that crushes me. So the Lord was sorry he ever made them and put them on the earth. It broke his heart. God was sorry that he created us? What exactly does this mean? God cannot hang out with sin. Look at the track record up to this point. Adam and Eve, they disobeyed God. They were banished from the Garden of Eden. The tree of life had been guarded. Cain failed to do what was right. Instead, he killed his brother Abel, banished from God's presence and from his home. Suddenly we have all of humanity embracing sin. And the Bible says that every thought that they have, every image that crossed their mind was absolutely, utterly evil. Humanity makes a switch. So therefore God's outlook upon humanity has to make a switch. It switches from mercy and patience to now involving judgments. Now please understand that he is still a merciful God. The Bible says his mercies for you and for me are new every morning. I don't know how many days I can tell you that I am, I am so grateful of that. Because I am certain that if I was God, I'd be like, I'm not refilling this today because yesterday you were something else. Yes? Come on, anybody else like that? But God said, you know what? I, I, I love you so much. I'm going to fill your supply of mercy brand new today for you. But this merciful God, this loving Father, by the way, God is defined by definition as love. That's who he is. But now thrown into the mix is judgment. Judgment now became a part of of our relationship. Look at Psalm 99. It says, They, or Moses and Aaron, cried out to the Lord for help. He answered them. He spoke to Israel from the pillar of cloud, and they followed the laws and decrees he gave them. O oh Lord our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but you punished them when they went wrong. He's a loving God, but he's a, a merciful God, but there's also got to be the judgment involved. He is still patient with us, but he cannot and will not tolerate sin. The very definition of sin is a separation of sin is death. The payment of sin is death. What is death? It's complete and ultimate separation from God for all eternity. In fact, in the book of Habakkuk, chapter 1, verse 13, it says this, But you are pure and cannot stand the sight of evil. God, you are a, a pure God. Lord, you are a holy God. You cannot even stand to look upon evil. Again, we are called to be holy because he is holy. We are called to be different, to be set apart. If you have a relationship with Christ, then you are not a citizen of this world you find your residency in heaven with God. We are just simply passing through. We are here for a season of 70, 80, 90, 100 years. But one of these days, we will enter into our eternity, our home for all time with God in heaven. 
We are here for a season. Observation number three is this. Our time on earth is coming to an end. Church, it's time to turn to God. It's time to stop playing games. Our time on earth is short, whether you believe it or not. The days are numbered. It's only a matter of time before God returns to take us home. I don't know when. We are not guaranteed another breath, though. We're not even guaranteed another day. Eternity is simply one heartbeat away. Not only that, but the return of God is closer today than it's ever been Before, man has tried and tried and tried to pinpoint the day of when it's going to happen. But the Bible tells us that no man knows the day or the hour. We must simply be ready. Look what it says in Matthew chapter 24. However, no one knows the day or hour when these things will happen. Not even the angels in heaven or the Son himself. You see, Jesus right now is preparing a place for us. That where he is one day, we may also be with him. Only the Father knows. When the Son of Man, or when Jesus returns, it will be like it was in the day of Noah. In those days before the flood, people were enjoying banquets and parties and weddings right up to the time of Noah. Return uh, when Noah entered his boats. People didn't realize what was going to happen until the floods came and swept them away. That is what it will be when the Son of Man comes. Two men will be working together in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding flour in the mill. One will be taken, one will be left. So you too must keep Watch. Look at your neighbor tonight and say, keep watch. We're going to talk about what that means in just a moment. You do not know what day the Lord is coming. So you too must keep watch. Why? Because you don't know when he's coming back. Understand this. If a homeowner knew exactly when a burglar was coming, he would keep watch And not permit that house to be broken into. You also must be ready at all time. For the Lord, the Son of Man, will come when we least expect it. This was the same warning that Noah was giving to the people in his day. The floods are coming. Destruction is coming. Get yourselves ready. Yet they continued their life in total disregard to his warning. The key that I want you to see in this section of Scripture, the game changer for you and and for me is two simple word combo. I had you say it a moment ago. Keep watch. What does that mean for the Christian? It simply means keep your life on the right path. Do regular examinations of your life, of your relationship. Daily, take up your cross and choose to follow him. It's more than a title. It's more than saying, I'm a Christian. It's more than saying, I'm a Sumas of God or I'm Baptist or I'm Methodist or anything else. It's more than an obligation. Well, I go to church X amount of times a month. It's a conscious decision. It's a conscious desire to follow him. Take up your cross daily and follow him. 
Will you have temptation? Absolutely. Will there be things that seem intriguing? Absolutely. So what do you do? The sons of God, the descendants of Seth, had a choice to make. They looked upon the beautiful women, the daughters of man. They had a choice to make. Do I embrace that that is in direct opposition to God? Or do I embrace what is pleasing to my flesh? Church, let me challenge you tonight. Turn to God. Choose Him. In verse 3 it says that God stated that man's days shall be 120 years. This could mean lifespan becomes shorter. Now remember, Adam lived 930 years. Man, I'm on year almost 44. This Thursday will be 44. I'm not sure that I can make it 930 years. Seth lived 912 years. Methuselah, 969 years. How would you like to live 969 years? Today, our lifespan is 70, 80, 90, maybe 100 years. So it could be that 120 years simply meant that our lifespan is shorter. But many theologians believe that this is referring to God giving them 120 years to get their lives straightened out. That seems a wee bit generous to me. I mean, I look at my kids, I go, you've got like 15 minutes to get that room straightened up right now or I'm going to come down on you. And God's like, you know what, I'm going to give you 120 years. Yeah, what do you think? Man, God is a generous God. 120 years. But Psalm 103 tells me this, the Lord is compassionate and merciful, slow to get angry, and filled with unfailing love. The Lord is compassionate on you and and on me. He he longs to give us that opportunity. But guess what? Even with 120 years, time ran out. Time ran out. Let me encourage you. Don't wait till a year 119. Don't wait till the last five seconds. Make the change Tonight, turn to him tonight. You don't know when time is going to run out. It could be now. It could be tonight. It could be tomorrow morning. It could be next month. It could be next year. We don't know. We're not promised another breath. We are promised that every one of us has an appointed time in which to die. We're also promised that there's coming a day when Jesus will step on the edge of heaven and call all of the saints home. We don't know when either one of those is going to happen, but I'm telling you what, we're running out of 120 days. Our time is short. Look at our final observation, number four. As a Christian, we have a role to play for future generations you see we can't just be concerned about self it's not what's good for me 
It's what impact am I making on my children and my grandchildren and my great-grandchildren. See, I, I haven't reached the grandchildren phase, but I would venture to say within the next 10 years, I'll have grandkids. That's crazy. You see, what I'm doing now, investing in my kids, is going to make an impact upon my grandkids. What I share with my kids, how I'm training them up, how I'm investing in them, makes an impact not only on my life, but on my kids and upon my grandkids and upon my great-great-grandkids and the great-great-great-great-grandkids and on down the line. We're in a series on Sunday mornings called My Family Circus. That's why it looks a bit like a circus in here. I would encourage you, come out, hang out, check out Sunday mornings. Go to the church website, look at the, the messages. I believe that God is speaking directly into our hearts. What sort of stance are you taking as the parents? What sort of stance are you making as a family? Seth's family line was known as the godly line, but it was failing to take its stance seriously. They were allowing their sinful desires and their fleshly cravings to receive a higher amount of attention than their passion for the things of God. I don't know about you, but I see a problem there. You can't toy with sin. I am fearful that too often we do much of the same. We fail to promote or even encourage a true walk with God because we don't want to seem pushy. We don't want to seem too religious. I want you to know tonight, I'm not religious. I've said this before. A great pastor friend of mine once told me this. Religion hung around the cross, but the relationship hung on the cross. I don't claim to be a religious person. I don't do church out of routine. I don't do this because I have to. I do this because I want to. I love the Lord my God with all of my heart, with all that I am. I long to follow after His plan, to follow after His purpose, to do what He's called me to do. What stance are you going to take, Mom? What stance are you going to take, Dad? What stance are you going to take, young person, Grandma and Grandpa? What stance are you going to take? The role you play affects our future generations what we're talking about is encouraging and promoting a relationship with God that extends generation after generation after generation before the cross.com made this statement a godly legacy begins when we're intentional parents to create a home that honors God me ask you this question does your home honor God think about it does your home honor God I guess the question that I want to ask tonight is what direction is your family headed the line of Cain or the line 
of Seth. The godly route or the ungodly route. What direction are you leading? Oh, well, I just want my kids to choose their own way. Can I just be honest with you? That is the most foolish statement any parent's ever made. Basically what you're saying is I want to give my kid the best chance to go to hell possible. I'm just being real with you. Is that all right? Three of you said okay. What direction are you taking your family? You see, the goal of any Christian should be to take as many people to heaven with you. Man, when I, when I get to heaven, I want to have a party with all of those that I was a part of bringing them there. Or like, all those that knew me on earth, all those that I had an opportunity to speak into your life, let's go over here for a little bit, let's party. Jesus, would you hang out with us? Come on. Wouldn't that be great? Not so that I could say, look at this, look what I've done. But just to see the reward. Our goal should be to take as many people to heaven with us. To share the good news of Jesus Christ with as many as possible. To bring them to church. But I don't want to be pushy. What if they say no? But what if they say yes? How many lives can you impact for the kingdom of God? You see, that's what Seth's descendants were missing. They had lost the focus. They had lost what really mattered. They were simply en route to please the flesh and to engage a life that the world had to offer. We make a lot of choices every day that affects the future generation, whether you realize it or not. You need to take your choices seriously. Look at this. Number one, how do you treat people? If you claim to be a Christian, if you claim to have a relationship with Christ, and people say, oh, you go to such and such church, you're a Christian, how do you treat people? There are people that are watching your every step. How do you respond to your boss, to conflict, to strife? What do you do when things go bad, when things don't go the way that you want them to go? You see, if we claim to be a Christian, they are watching to see if Jesus is real or not. said this before, but I never want to be someone's excuse to avoid church. Well, I don't need to go to church because I'm no different than he is. I respond to life just the way he does. His mouth is just like my mouth. His response is just like my responses. I never want to be someone's excuse. But on the flip side, I want to be someone's reason to come and know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. The second choice is, do you value your relationship with God? Do you value, I mean really value, or you just do this because this is what you've always done? Do you value your relationship? This will greatly impact everything else you do. If there's no real value there, then you will not put in the hard work that is needed. You won't take up your cross. You won't follow when things get hard. Do you really value Jesus, or is he just a convenient friend? Number three, do you share the message of Jesus with those you influence? This is not just mentioned in the Bible as a suggestion. This is said as a command. We are to go and make disciples, to share the good news, to tell of his wondrous love, his grace, his mercy, his forgiveness, what he's done in our lives. Have you shared that? Oh, well, pastor, I I, I really don't share 
anything about Jesus because my walk with Christ is a personal, private thing. Well, that's where you're messing up. Messing up. Nowhere in the Bible do I see that our walk with Christ is to be personal. It should be a time to go public. To proclaim it from the rooftops. To be a light on the highest mountain. To shine for the world to see. You see, our role is not to stay quiet, but to tell of the good news of Christ. Finally, do you represent Christ to your family? I'm not saying, do you bring him to church? Do you represent Christ? Do you influence them in the walk with Christ? talk more about this in the weeks to come on Sunday mornings. Again, I encourage you be here as we deal with this family circus, the clowns, the showmen, the daredevils that we experience in life. But suffice it to say, our mission field begins at home. A scripture I read this morning, I want to read it again tonight, but those who won't care for the relatives, especially those living in their own household, have denied the true faith. Such people are worse than unbelievers. It's time to begin to live Jesus, not just at church, but at home and everywhere we go. Final choice that I see is this. What receives the most value in your life? What gets the most attention? Work, hobbies, social media, God, what is it? Because Matthew chapter 7 says this, not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. But God, I went to church every Sunday. I don't know you. But God, I was a greeter on Sunday mornings, the first service every week. Maybe you missed me because the crowd's a little bigger. No, I don't know you. But I sing on the worship team. I don't know you. But I change dirty diapers. I don't know you. Do you value your relationship with God? Again, it's time to take our walk with God seriously. Not just for you, but for every generation that follows. I'm reminded of a guy in the Old Testament by the name of Joshua. Joshua chapter 24 tells us that he pulled together all the tribes of Israel for a little powwow, for a little conversation. He begins to list off all the great things that God had done for them. And he makes a very bold statement. You see, they had found themselves like the sons of God, the lineage of Seth. They were compromising in their faith. They were allowing sin to run rampant. But look what Joshua says. He says, so fear the Lord and serve Him wholeheartedly. Come on, look at that. It's important. He's saying, don't serve Him out of convenience. Can I be honest with you? There, there are times it's not convenience. Jesus Himself said, they're going to hate you because of me. As a Christian, I have a hard time understanding that. But it's just like a cockroach hates the light. Sin hates the light. So fear the Lord and serve Him wholeheartedly. Put away forever the idols 
your ancestors worshiped when they lived beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt. Serve the Lord alone. But if you refuse to serve the Lord, then choose today who you will serve. Would you prefer the lowercase g gods, your ancestors serves beyond the Euphrates? Or will it be the lowercase g gods of the Amorites in whose lands you now live? But as for me and my house, Joshua made a determining moment right there amongst all the people. He said, as for me and my house, you know what? I encourage you to serve God, but you choose for you. But as for me and my house, I don't know which direction you're going to go. If you're going to follow this lowercase g God or this false God, I don't know about you. But as for me and my house, as for me and my family, I'm drawing a line in the sand. I'm going to lead the way, not just for now's generation, but for the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren and the great-great-grandchildren and all of those to follow. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Three things that I see. Number one is don't be afraid to stand for God. It's going to take a little bit of extra boldness for some of you, but the payoff in the end is worth it. Number two, lay out a challenge to those you influence. Joshua wasn't afraid to powwow all the crowd together and say, I don't know what you guys are doing. I don't know what direction you're going to go. But let me encourage you, turn away from the false gods and turn to God and serve him wholeheartedly. If it's not God, who's it going to be? Number three, commit your family to God. Mom and dad, you're responsible to God. For the children he's entrusted you. What are you doing with that responsibility? How are you raising them up? How are you leading the way? I make the same statement that Joshua made. As for me and my house, as for me and my family, we're going to serve the Lord. How about you? How about you? What direction is it going to be for you? I'm not asking you, do you come to church on a Sunday? I'm asking you, where are you leading your family? What's that going to be for the now generation? generations to follow. As for me and my house, 